good afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 88 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. Wait, uh, wait, wait, one second. Are we and? a clan of two once again? Oh my god, <laughs> clan of two. Who's Grogu and who's the Mandalorian? <laughs> Shotgun Mando. I'm, I'm obviously Grogu as well. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously have the Grogu energy. <laughs> <laughs> but on that note, it's time for our dispatch of the week, coming from Hannah Flint. Uh, Hannah, how are things on the ground in Goa? Hello, dear friends. It's me, Hannah. Uh, I'm here in Goa at the 53rd uh, International Film Festival of India. I've been here the last week. I think I'm, it's weird. I'm five and a half hours ahead, um, which is weird that they do half half hours ahead instead of full hours. So anyway, so I think, you know, some people are still in bed when I'm sending this across. But what's been happening so far? So um, I've seen some movies. Um, I've seen, I'm covering for Mashable out here, so I'm doing a lot of female-led and female-directed films. I, um, I saw this one, Color, last night. I'm seeing another one called Tang tomorrow. Um, this is a Friday when I'm recording this. Um, and yeah, there's been there's there's been a few uh, there's been a few exciting things to see. We went to the opening ceremony, which was some amazing Bollywood dancing um, performances. Although I tell you what, things are run on a bit long here. Interestingly, in the short film section, which is non-feature, anything under ninety minutes is considered a short film, which kind of makes sense because. You know, Amon will know this, who's just hosted a, a screening with uh, the director of RRR. Uh, their films run about approximately like three hours. Um, also, people just like get out their phones, like in the middle of screenings, in the middle of panels. You can't kind of respect the gumption. And I'm, you know, who am I to uh, to 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 suggest that they stop? You know, I love it. I love the chaos. Um, I've been bitten to bits. Um, but yeah. I'm having a great, fun time. I'm sorry that I couldn't be there this week, but you, of course, are in great hands with Clarice and Amon. And I'll see you in a week. Enjoy. Also, loved Glass Onions, loved The Swimmers, which is out this week. So, uh, yeah, have a great weekend of cinema. Uh, Yes, I've been looking at Hannah Flint's Instagram over the last week. Uh, I'm not jealous at all. Um, she's she's having a terrible time, clearly, um, as oh, those pictures so indicate. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, she's having a awesome time. If she does not bring me back something good, but she is not allowed back on this podcast, though. So, uh, Hannah, if you're listening, uh, I hope uh, you take that into account and act accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this week we enter a strange world with Disney's latest animated adventure. While Clarice speaks to the film's co-directors Don Hall and Ki Nguyen, we devour Luca Guadagnino's new film Bones and All, tackle Maria Schrader's take on the New York Times investigation that exposed Harvey Weinstein's crimes in She Said, and give our own revolting review of Matilda the Musical. I also speak to one of its stars, Andrea Weisborough, who was a lot of fun. Plus, in our hot take, we welcome in the holiday season with the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special to see what it might tell us about the Intergalactic Crew's final outing in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and really the final closing of MCU Phase 4. We might get into that as well. Uh, But before all of that, Khalees Lockley, how's your week been? 
Um, you were on a panel, right? I was on a panel uh, about a pretty on-brand topic of sexy monsters. <laughs> Which ones are so sexy? Why are they so sexy? What's the psychology? What's the cultural history? Uh, we talked about, you know, a little bit of Dracula, um, Francis Ford Coppola, and Bela Lugosi, a little bit of Amphibian Man from Shape of Water, and Gill Man from Creature of the Black Lagoon, from Creature from the... I always fuck this title up for some reason. <laughs> you know the one. And a little bit of Vecna, too. Uh, yeah, and then we all had to say what our monster crush was, and I think mine was a little controversial, so... <laughs> so what I don't know if I it? want to repeat it here. Oh yes, you do. You can't say that and not repeat it. Xenomorph <laughs> from Alien. Yeah, that is controversial. <laughs> I can see. Okay. I can only imagine what the reaction was in the room. <laughs> it's you know, it's like edgy and Freudian, but also the Xenomorph's got that long tail that I feel like it could wrap me up and keep me cozy on a winter's night. So. It's a good good combination of like, yeah, Freudian nightmare, but also I feel like they could be a good partner. <laughs> Clarice Lockley, you are one of <laughs> you, you are one of one. That is for sure. Um, <laughs> What's yours? What's your monster crush? What is my monster crush? I'm not sure if those two words go in the same sentence in my brain. Um. <laughs> I mean, lots of people, I think, take the easy route out and choose, like, a hot actor as a vampire. So, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Google, Google's never played a vampire, has she? She has not. But yes, Nina, in, in when, <laughs> when I used to watch The Vampire Diaries, um, Nina Dobrev, who I still have a crush on, uh, she played a vampire. Uh, she played a, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. She, I think it was Catherine. Um, in that, and she was she, she's she's a very attractive human being, um, a very a attractive vampire monster. Um, so so yeah, there you go. There's my answer. Perfect. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? You've also been very busy. I have. I, I've done a couple of Q and A's, really exciting Q and A's. So last Sunday, um, I was on stage with Questlove oh. and Margaret Brown and Joycelyn Davis to talk about Descendant. Uh, we actually also have an interview with Joycelyn Davis and Margaret Brown. Uh, we'll hopefully be dropping that next week. It was a lot of fun. And that panel was a lot of fun. And then on Wednesday, I was on stage again with the director of RRR, a film which we did not talk about this year, I don't think, but it's one of the best films I've seen this year. Um, Indian super epic directed by S.S. Rajamuli, who was, and, and that's the person I was on stage with. Uh, it was a BAFTA Q&A, so it's at BAFTA, uh, which is nice. And we had a lot of fun there too. Uh, if you have not seen either of those films, they are both on Netflix now and they are both well worth your time. Mm. Oh, I didn't know I didn't know it was on Netflix. Because uh, I know, you know, in the UK, it's one of those difficult things where a lot of... Uh, it's an Indian film, right? This is correct, yes. Yeah, a lot of Indian films get such limited releases, you know, be like a couple of cinemas and then disappear and even something as huge as that. Mm -hmm. um doesn't get a lot of uh spread here so it's cool it's cool that it's on netflix i didn't know that yep it's on netflix the bigger mm. the bigger screen that you can watch this on the better because let me tell you 
it is awesome. <laughs> Let's get the uh, out for that one. <laughs> you really, really should. The use of slow motion is epic. Just some of the most epic scenes you will have seen um, in any film. And the people think it's, it's not just an action extravaganza, it's also a musical. Um, there's a song, there's a dance number in the film called Natu Natu. And earlier this week, I fell down a Natu Natu YouTube cover rabbit hole um because it's so good the dancing the song itself there's a bit where they're dancing with suspenders it is so creative and so well done and in the film it's basically two actors the two heroes who are dancing side by side they are so in sync it is phenomenal like i've watched that specific bit of the naughty naughty song multiple times because i'm just mesmerized by it it's amazing um so yeah, let this be my endorsement. It's so funny. I got asked to do, um, to write, uh, to, to rank the super, the best super films of the year uh, for an outlet. I'm doing that in a couple of weeks' time, and it is not that Pat Doyle kind of forever. It is not the Batman. The number one super film that I've seen this year is RRR. Uh, so cool. that let that be okay. the final word on it. If you if you don't wow. want to watch it after what I just said. There's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> I do want to so, watch yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll discuss it next week. But for now, mm-hmm. we've got a ton to discuss and a ton to listen to, starting with Khalees Lockwood's interview. But let's hear the trailer first for Strange World. Baby Clade! What is the president doing in our front yard? Our entire world is in grave danger. I want you to come with me on an expedition. I'm not my father. He was the explorer. I know you were just a kid when you went missing, but now you're all we got. Mr. Clade, I'm a huge fan of your dad. Do you think you could forge his autograph? What? Where in the world are we? Ethan, you brought the dog? Sorry. Let me tell you about the strange worlds happening to me. Strange worlds. It's from one, doing from Toy Story. <laughs> oh, that's where it's from. I was wondering. I, I looked at it on Strange the copy. Strange worlds <laughs> happening to me. <laughs> nah, I don't know sense. which Toy Story it's from, but it's from one of the Toy Stories. <laughs> this is Strange World. Uh, from what Toy Story's Pixar, this is Walt Disney Studios animation. Uh, Strange World journeys deep into an uncharted and treacherous land where fantastical creatures await the legendary clades, a family of explorers whose differences threaten to topple their latest and by far most crucial mission. Directed by Don Hall and co-directed and written by Ki Nguyen, it features the voices of Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid, Jabuki Young-White, Gabrielle Union and Lucy Liu. Uh, So I spoke to Don and Ki about uh a lot of things <laughs> um the, the 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 sort of ideas about environmentalism that the film has uh how to create the absolutely spectacular monsters this film offers and also i held it off as long as i could <laughs> by talking about splat who's kind of <laughs> the runaway star of this movie and is so adorable i love splat but here is my interview please enjoy 
first off, congratulations on such a wonderful, fun film. Thank uh, you. Uh, I'm already obsessed with Splat, so <laughs> <laughs> just great. <laughs> uh, and the first question I, I wanted to ask really is, yeah, I'm so conscious of the fact that Disney is Animation Studios is coming up to its 100th mm-hmm. anniversary, which is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that Roy Conley at the premiere last night, he, he was kind of talking about this idea that Strange World is both moving the studio forward while also remaining essentially Disney. Mm-hmm. And I really, I thought that idea was really interesting. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys, now that you've made the movie mm-hmm. and you can reflect back on it, I mean, how, like, what do you think Strange World says about where Disney animation is at the moment? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, well, I think, um, I'd say we're in a really healthy place. Uh, because there's, um, I mean, we, there's so many new people at the studio. Like we, like now that we're coming back from the pandemic, right? We're all starting to come back in the building. Um, so many people that I don't know. And, and, you know, it, there's a, just a really interesting vibe at the studio right now with, with a lot of young talent. And it, it reminds me of kind of when I first started on Tarzan, where there was just this kind of electric vibe. Uh, going on in the building and and I'm starting to recognize that now as we go back in and so um, I think you know what what we accomplished on this film um, is pretty extraordinary especially when you consider that we also did Raya in the middle of it like we started this film and put it down for a year and a half did Raya and then came back and picked it up and um, it is it's the complexity of this film is kind of off the charts. And so to be able to pull that off uh, in a relatively, well, it's not relatively, it is a short amount of time, um, is, is extraordinary. And, and it was only because of the talent and the passion of everybody at, at Disney Animation. They put everything they had in this because they loved the story, they loved the characters, and they believed in you know, what the film was saying. Uh, so I, you know, I've been there a while. <laughs> Um, and I just don't think this, this is the strongest and, and most vibrant, I think, that we've ever been. I, I wondered, like, the thing that I love most about this movie, apart from Splat, <laughs> <laughs> is the way that it's so lovingly tied to, you know, the, the history of adventure serials mm-hmm. and Jules Verne and H.D. Wells. And, and I feel like that also has such a history at Disney because I think of like 20,000 Leagues Under yeah. the Sea, yeah. Treasure Planet, which I loved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think of the Disney parks, like Adventureland, that mm-hmm. entire area. And and so I wondered when you were, you know, putting together this idea of Strange World, did you look internally back at like Disney's own history to draw inspiration from? I think it, when when looking at things, like I think mainly it was also you know because ultimately we're you know just filmmakers and and you're, you're digging into what makes you want to tell a story, and and part of it was you know wanting to do a love letter to both our, our fathers and our kids, uh, but also like what we grew up wanting to watch. Like we remember sitting in cinemas watching Indiana Jones and Star Wars and things like that, and trying to capture that magic, the thing that. Uh, excited us about movies is what we wanted to encapsulate in Strange World. It was so 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 yeah. I mean, we're you know we're Disney fans first and foremost, and, but we're also cinephiles at the same time. And so it was uh, the marriage between those things that really uh, gets exciting to, to to be in the room with a whole bunch of artists and basically kind of you know like I think the job of a director is to kind of excite that 
part of their imaginations to get them to want to bring their best selves and to, to kind of create the kind of characters and worlds that uh, that we all loved visiting when we were kids watching movies for the first time. Okay, this is quite a broad question, but I'm going to ask it. How, how do you start to imagine the unimaginable? Because that's what I kept thinking during this movie. When I saw certain things, I was like, how did they come? <laughs> like how th- this thing that just like doesn't exist like how, right. like where do you start in the design process <laughs> <laughs> um there was a method to our madness um and i'm gonna try and speak to it without um doing any spoilers uh but but you know we did have a kind of a game plan in mind as far as what the the mystery of Strange World was going to be. We knew the answer to that. We knew we wanted to keep it a mystery. That was the big discovery of the film. So there was some some research that we started with um, that pertained to that. But then, you know, that we did the research and then we kind of threw it out and let the artist just run wild, you know. And that was actually part of the the appeal to this film for me was was not having a lot of prescripted ideas of what Strange World was going to be. I love the idea. Uh, and I was very comfortable with the, my, you know, 10 years ago, you know, like starting out as a director, I might not have been, you know, but because you're, you're just some insecurities you have when you're first starting out that you feel like you have to have all the answers, you know. But um, I'm, a, I'm a little further into my career now, and I knew the I knew what everybody was capable of, and I was very comfortable not having all the answers. And, and actually, that was part of the appeal to see how everybody would respond to this kind of essentially a blank slate and where it could be anything, you know. And, and it was really, really fun when with visual development, whereas that's where you first start to kind of put the world together and the creatures together and, and letting them run wild with just, you know, coming in with their most off the wall ideas. And generally, that's where that was where we started and then kept pushing them to go even weirder. I mean, was that. Because I, I feel like with every Disney animation movie that comes out, there's always something that, like, the directors and the animators get really excited about. Like, with Frozen, it was the snow simulation, mm. and with Moana, it was, like, all the kinetic, like, beautiful water effects. With Strange World, was there, was, like, one thing that everybody in the studio was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's, I mean, one, one, I mean, there's many things, obviously, like, from the environments there to, to the creatures, but obviously Splat was a, was a, a, cre- a creation that is built on what uh, Disney animators do almost best, right? Creating these amazing characters. He, he's a nonverbal character that is really, uh, comes alive with just movement and sound, right? Like, he's, he's very much like the carpet in Aladdin, or like the brooms from Fantasia, where you're just like, oh, they're fully uh, enjoyable and, and charismatic characters uh, built on the talents of our, our Disney animation team. So, so, so definitely, I think those were that was a character that we all just loved to to play with. Yeah, and as far as scenes go, I would probably highlight the uh, towards the middle of the film where there's a chase on a um, a flying swarm of weird sushi looking creatures. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that was one of the first scenes we put into production, and it was the last one we finished. It took us basically the entire production time of the film to do that scene. Um, and because it was so complex, so complex. You've got moving, a moving environment that is unstable. You've got, you know, what, four characters? I think, yeah, because Legend's in it as well. Um, and Splat. So uh, multiple characters that are, you know, having to navigate a very unstable environment. Uh, that is going super fast. Um, 
just the level of complexity in that sequence is is kind of unimaginable. But everybody approached it with such joy because because of that, you know, nobody ran away from it. They embraced it, you know, because of they just knew it would be, you know, a spectacular sequence, uh, and uh, they put everything they had into it. It's interesting you mentioned that you said the suit, the sushi cream. Did you have nicknames for all of the animals? Because I was kind of making them up in my head yeah. and like writing them down on my notepad, just yeah. making up crazy names. Oh, <laughs> they're yeah, yeah. called goblin squills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah, it was, it was, I think that was probably the hardest thing was like, because we had all our made up names for these creatures. Anytime we had new artists step in, we would, we would forget that they don't know, know it just yet. And they're like, wait, what, what, which one's the poop pickle? And which one is the filter lope? And which one's the, wait, what's happening here? Like, right, right, right. Here's the glossary. Yeah. Have fun. We'll, we'll see you tomorrow. It, it took a minute to onboard people on the strange world just to get used to the lay of the land. It was a, it was a very weird place to. I love it. I feel enter. like you should officially release them so everyone can just be on the same page. I think they're in the art of book, yeah. actually. I think in the art of book, it goes, it, I think they, I think we do that. So. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so, so I, this is the thing. I, I kind of I don't want to spoil where this movie goes because yeah, yeah. I yeah, thought right. it's so beautiful. But I kind of want to talk around something mm-hmm. yeah, slightly. Yeah, totally. Go ahead. Uh, because the next movie, Disney Animation, is doing a wish, yes, and yes. you know that is such a foundational part of the Disney ethos. You know, wishes and hopes and yes. dreams. But you know, when we're talking about the future of our world, it's not necessarily a helpful way to think. And what I thought was so brilliant about Strange World is that it starts to talk about sacrifice yes and teach kids that sacrifice sometimes is good and necessary and i i wondered kind of how you went about that idea and like still making it feel disney but like maybe kind of challenging like some of the concepts a little bit Mm. well clearly the movie's an environmental one right and i think that like uh i think it's important for us that like the best way to talk about itself is to make it very personal you know, and with relationship to your family, but real relationship purely to the world itself, not just like a theoretical intellectual idea of what, what the world was. So it was very much like, what if you, uh, you know, what what is your personal relationship to this? So you fell in love with creatures from this world and, 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 and ultimately, without spoiling anything, you know, realizing that it, it's a, a very specific personal relationship to that world that helps save it. It's not one that's going to be built from like, Hoping some corporation is going to make some mandate that will fix everything is it starts with you, and uh, and that 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 it, it was kind of centered around like our character Ethan that we love so much and how he falls in love with Strange World and ultimately realizes, you know, his goal is to save it. And I guess like I I wondered if this was something that you had to to kind of tackle and, and struggle with is because you know as as adults <laughs> yeah, yeah. like climate change is terrifying, mm-hmm. it's so terrifying. Mm-hmm. But obviously you you want to be able to tell kids about it and educate them and mm-hmm. like equip them with the tools you know to go on and make things better but you also don't want to scare them and traumatize right. them so did you have to try and find like just hitting the right like level where you could yeah yeah get that tone you know i i tried like early when we were beginning the film i was watching some documentaries and you know i remember trying to have one of my sons sit down and watch um one of these environmental documentaries about climate change with me and he made it about five minutes into it and said, I can't, I gotta, I gotta, I can't watch this. Um, so what that taught me was that they don't need, like they are very aware of climate change and very aware of, of how they're going to have to be dealing with it, you know? And so, 
uh, I knew we didn't have to run away from it, but the movie was really more about an allegory. Like, to make it enjoyable for an audience, you know, I think the, the goal was to kind of weave it into a, an allegory, you know, and, and to hide the fact that it's an environmental story for a bit and let it reveal itself over time, you yeah. know, because it just felt like if you front-loaded it, you know, we've talked about this, if, like, Callisto was, you know, CEO of Pandotech, you're like, okay, I know where this is going. Yeah, okay. You know, so just from a narrative point of view, you know, it was important for us to kind of, you know, disguise things a little bit. Yeah, and I, I guess that comes down so much. You were talking about the the personal relationships and what I liked about it is obviously like you want humor and you want mm-hmm. levity and you want also like moments of, of real honesty and what really stuck out to me is that there's so many scenes in this where characters get to just talk like two people just get to have a really mm-hmm. honest conversation and I wondered from a like a script writing point of view like where do you how do you kind of build the map of relationships? Because it's quite a large cast, but everyone gets a moment together. Yeah, which I, thought was I really think that nice. was a very important thing that, like, the, that we did have that because, like, ultimately it was a story about a family. You know, like, uh, you know, when you cut everything away from the action adventure and all that, like, what made it superhuman was the fact that, like, it was a family and it was a family that we understood really well. Like, I think that you know, Don and I are the same age as the main character, Searcher. We know what it's like to have a conflict with your dad. We know what it's like to definitely have a conflict with your kid. And we also know when we have those conflicts, where the kid goes to is often their mom. And so that that that, that, that relationship, those relationships, um, felt very important to us because, you know, one, it is the humanizing part. It's the thing that when you're, as an audience member, sitting there watching, you're like, I get that family, that's my family. Uh, but also it was more important to see how they resolve those issues because we all understand conflict makes great humor and great drama but ultimately you want to see how they get to the other side of all that because like i think the the healing of their personal relationship also came in line with the healing of the world that they were trying to save i think that that both those things were a great metaphor of like as you said self-sacrifice searcher had to sacrifice something within himself to allow ethan to be to be able to follow the trajectory ethan needed to follow this entire world, this entire family is going to have to sacrifice their relationship to Panda to ultimately give a world for Ethan and future generations to be able to to live and enjoy uh, Avalonia, the world they live on. Yeah, and okay, I want to talk about Splat. <laughs> I've put it off long enough. I want to talk about Splat, but I found I I thought it was very interesting. I've been kind of told a little bit about how this works, mm-hmm. but that Splat and also Legend are just credited as themselves. <laughs> yeah. Can yeah. you explain what that is? <laughs> well, I mean, there's no voice actor, you know, voicing Splat. It's a, a you know completely sound design generated. Uh, sounds that and we there was talk at one point about is even you know splat even gonna ha- have a, a sound you know yeah. but I thought it, I thought it was important to just I think I t- just thought it would be funny and appealing <laughs> to be honest with you um, and legend yeah I don't even know where we got the dog sounds yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. that was just another sound bed like, yeah. I think it was like random dogs that like uh, you know Samson our sound designer went and recorded a bunch of dogs that, you know probably his own dog yeah, like, okay here we go uh, but like yeah, but it, like those, those those creatures are always definitely the most fun to put together because uh, you know like it takes full, full the the extent of Disney animators and their imaginations to figure out how they move, how they interact, uh, their appeal, all those things, and of course with like a, a dog like Legend, the the fight was 
you know, not letting him steal every scene he shows up in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, I feel like Splat, well, Splat reminded me a lot of, of, like, Chip and Dale, like, very classic, like, I don't know if there was a bit of Chipmunk in those sounds, <laughs> or am I completely reading I, it I wrong? honestly don't know how, how <laughs> Shannon, our sound, our sound designer, made it. Uh, I have no clue. Oh, wow. So it's just, like, a mystery bundle of noises that you it, presented and you went, yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. I love Basically, that. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And we had, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this this is a question that I always find really interesting to to ask uh, animation directors because it's quite it's quite a big question. <laughs> but like we're all conscious that in a month Avatar: The Way of Water is coming out, yes. and like that has been worked on for years. Like it feels like it's going to be the absolute apex of computer animation technology in terms of photorealism. And it seems like most of the film is computer animation. And so for me, it feels like it, it poses, you know, animation right. a really interesting challenge of going, okay, well, okay, what what can we offer? Like, what do we do that's different from yeah. what Avatar's doing? Mm-hmm. Because there is space for both and there's a need for both. Yeah. But I kind of wanted to hear your take on it as the expert. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When I first started, you know, when I first started uh, at Disney on Tarzan, that, that was a question about like, okay, what it what makes something animatable? You know, as if there were, and there were sort of conditions that, you know, that, that we were taught about like, okay, what 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 makes our films different in terms of, you know, what, what is animation friendly? I, I honestly feel like all bets are off now. I, I, it can be anything. <laughs> you know, there's no limitations, no rules. It really is just what the filmmaker, you know, what they're passionate about, and if they have a, a you know, a vision for it. Yeah. Um, I still think it comes down to artistic choice, yeah. right? Like, I think that when it comes down to like, you know, movies that like, I mean, I throw Marvel into it too. That like, so much of that's also animated, from fight sequence to you know, battle mech and all that. Uh, but like, you know, the 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 art form of making hybrid films like that is photorealism. Uh, which I obviously, you know, our animators can do too, because part of CG is to be able to do that. For us, it's like about the artistic choice, you know, like uh, of, of making sure that we're making visual choices that 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 best tell our stories, that make it different than just going photorealistic every time. And I think the other thing is, you know, when it comes to the animation, there, it's like also the breadth of where you're getting performance from. You know, with with that, it's still basically mocap. Right, like you put, you know, Chris Evans in a suit, and you put a whole ping bunch pongs. of you ping pongs on it, and so you're build, building it literally on the performer. And here, the performances are coming from the imaginations of uh, Disney animators. So, like how they move, like splat, to even like the the actors themselves were pushing like uh, animation movement that kind of is reflective uh, and homaging like the 1940s and 50s styles of 2D animation. So, I think it is about choice, uh, the artistic choices to make film and where the performances are coming from versus there where it's about oh we're just trying to make you know this full as real as possible so we'll just uh we'll, we'll use a lot of mocap technology we're still doing in a lot of ways what classically what animation still does it's just now we're using uh, really high-tech computers to do it it's interesting that you said about the fact that there's like no limits anymore and when you're in the kind of pitching idea stage of filmmaking now is there a 
does it feel like there's a pressure that with every movie you have to like go like more and more insane and like <laughs> strange world is so I, the, the nice thing about strange world is it's got the balance it's got things that i have never seen before in my life and a breathtaking but it's also really intimate in mm. places so do you feel like you're kind of pulled in certain directions um i don't know but necessarily um i think because i think it all like we was kind of saying it all kind of comes down to the filmmaker's choice and and no, you know knowing sort of you know a lot of the projects we have in development they are they are pers- they are perfect reflections of the filmmaker you know, if you know the filmmaker, you see them in those projects, which I think is really critical yeah. to make them. I, I think you have to have that as a director because these are original stories. And if you don't know your true north, you know, the movie will never get done. <laughs> I've seen it, you know, and so I think you've got to know what your personal connection to that story is. Now, does that mean that you have to, you know, you know, go as crazy as Strange World with every movie. <laughs> I mean, if they want to, it really does boil down to. Uh, oddly, I know it sounds crazy, but it really does kind of boil down to the filmmaker and what they, yeah. what they, where they want to go. I think it comes down. To, it has to be personal. Like, yeah. I think. Like I mean, like I came from before I came to Disney Animation. I was over at Marvel. So to to and, and the same questions are asked every time. And the question is, why do you have to make this movie? Why is it important to you to make this film? And the 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 the, the, the you know the the guts of it has to come from a very personal place because I, I remember Nate Moore very much going, look, if it's important, if it's a, a story that you have to tell, if relationships are real, trust me, there's plenty of people here that can sit around and give you the splash. Like, we can figure out your battles and the monsters and all the things you need. That's that's the easy part. The hard part is the characters, relationships, and basically the story that makes it personal to you because that's ultimately why we remember these films. It's not the big splash. And so whether it was Strange World, Raya, or a great or Avatar, and you ask those filmmakers, I bet you there's something, there's a key to it that, that makes it super personal. For Don, this was definitely a story about him and his dad. For Raya, it was like me writing a, a movie about uh, heroes for my kids. And I'm, I'm sure that that's going to always be the nut, the, the, the core, the true north of making any of these films, whether they're live action or Disney. I feel like that's such a great place to, to finish off. But thank you so much for your time. It was so nice to speak to you. And I'm excited to see what's next. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Okay. So I, what I find interesting about Strange World is that next year is 100 years. And I mentioned this in the interview. It's 100 years of Walt Disney animation, which kind of blows mm. my mind a little bit. Uh so I, I wonder just generally, among like, straight off the bat, <laughs> where does that, where does this fit in, in that 100 mm. century <laughs> of Disney animation? It's mm. huh. a good question. Um, I'm going to preface that answer by saying that I had an okay time with this film, but to now answer your question, it will probably be in the lower end of that 100-year Disney uh, ranking. Because while some of the stuff that it's doing is really, really interesting, a lot of it feels really, really familiar in terms of what we've seen from Disney before, from the comedic sidekicks, who are really, really fun, but we've seen that from Disney before, uh, to you know a group of people getting together to save the future of that town. Cool. We've seen that before. Um, tension along the way. Daddy issues. Cool. We've seen that before. And 
those are things like that which were done to a solid or even good degree at times with really great voice work, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But when I left, I was like, yeah, okay, I had a good time, but it didn't do enough new to catapult it above some of the other stuff that we've seen from Disney. And it's so interesting. We come this is the end of 2022. With Disney, we've had Lightyear, and we've also had Turning Red. Lightyear is another film which I'd say, which was good, solid, I had a good time, but it's also quite familiar in terms of a lot of the stuff that it's doing. Turning Red is the one which I would catapult above a lot of other stuff in Disney stuff. And that's the one which went straight to Disney+, Plus, which did not get a cinematic release, which is, you know, for me, top five films of the year, period. Not just anime films, period. I I agree. And it's it's sort of, I, re- I enjoyed it a lot. I had a lot of fun. But it feels hard coming up the high of Encanto. <laughs> Even that, yes. Encanto yeah. was so good. And coming to this and you're like, okay, there's no songs. And, and yeah, as you said, this the daddy issue storyline we've we've seen so many times before. Um, and I think for me, the thing about Strange World is that, obviously I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is something at the very end. It's like the mm-hmm. final, there's like a closing monologue that I thought was beautiful. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this, why wasn't this the movie? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's done really well written and so important for kids to hear, which mm-hmm. is why I'm kind of like reluctant to be too much of a downer on Strange World because I think it has something really important to say. Um, I mean, it is a film about ultimately environmentalism and um, how do we as uh, you know, present and incoming generations. <laughs> what do we? How do we leave behind a better world for? I think the thing they always say is they how they pitch this is how do we be good? How do we become good ancestors? Uh, mm. Which I do like. So I thought with that theme, kind of not present for most of the movie, <laughs> and then comes mm. in right at the end and is like, ah, oh, wow. I mean, what, how did you think it handled that central idea? Mm. I will get to that, but to back up one second, you said that there's no songs, and you're overall right, but oh, I did yes. have Yay yes. Clade, Clade <laughs> in my head <laughs> for a while after leaving the cinema. That was fun. I did, I did enjoy that. Um, That's a fair point. I did forget yeah. about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, great song for Dennis Quaid's character there. Um, but... Yeah, no, I I think you're 100% right. The final reel of the film is very powerful and articulates the message of climate change essentially very, very well. Um, I do think you can see that theme running through the film. Um, It's not always as in your face as it is in the final reel, but it is there. Um, If you, I don't think you have to look too closely to to find that. and I like the way how they, they threaded that through, actually, um, because there's a big sort of twist happening to midway through this film that turns the film on its head a little bit and puts the climate change, environmentalism message of it all, pushes that to the forefront a little bit more. Um, and I like what they did there. Mm, I guess, yeah, for most of the film, there's a real focus on the relationships and I did I did like a lot how 
um, this is a story about family unit. And Mm -hmm. although it is a traditional, like, yeah, daddy issues movie, (laughs) is Jake Gyllenhaal's character doesn't want to grow up to be like Dennis Quaid's character. And they argue a lot about that. But I I liked that it didn't sideline the mom and she still felt like she was a really central part and that each character got little moments together. So I think even the daddy issues, it's like, this is the thing. There's nothing that Strange World did badly, I would say. Mm-hmm. There's no point where I was like, oh, no. But I think yep. it's the difficulty of like, we have such high expectations for Disney animation um, that it always feels a little like, oh, when a movie doesn't totally like blow you out the water or like make yeah. you sob, it's just like, oh. <laughs> it's just it's just funny to me. <laughs> we had Lightyear, I've said this before, but we had Lightyear, and now this, and Turning Red. Turning Red is the one you give a cinematic release, and this, yeah. and Lightyear, is the one you go straight to streaming. If I watched this on streaming, it'd be like, yep, good time, good decision to make it to streaming. There's nothing in this film that is like, this needs to be seen on the big screen now. At least not for me. I mean, climate change message notwithstanding, at least because it is good for you know, audiences, especially because this is see that message. We also, we did um, have... Um, a gay character in this film who has done really, really well. Um, it's not handled lightly, but it's not. They, it's, it's, it's satisfying what they do with it. I love how the parents are clearly very cool with it. I love the conversation that that sort of. Uh, uh, I, I love the conversation that that leads to as well. There's one of the few genuinely funny bits is um, <laughs> cringe funny, but still funny is when uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, as the father to this uh, gay kid, meets the, meets the crush of the gay kid, which is, 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 is that, that was fun. <laughs> I did have a good time with it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's that as well. But like turning red, I think of the visuals, I think of the message, I think of the cast, I think of just the action. I mean, there's, I know this isn't a tiny bit of you, but <laughs> there, there is a big sort of fight scene in the end of that where I'm just like, I know if I watch that in a packed house, especially with the audience of people the film is really geared towards, that is getting monumental reactions, loud reactions in the cinema. People are going to have fun. Here, when I watched it in the cinema, it was fine, but there wasn't like any, you know, time where you could really felt the audience sort of into it and that sort of thing. I feel like Tony Red there is. And that's the last I'll say about Tony Red in this, in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you're right about it. it's interesting that like the the Disney PR machine has made such noise about like LGBTQ representation in past mm-hmm. films where yeah, they make a big fuss about it and then it's absolutely nothing in the movie. But I would say like this is probably Disney's first LGBTQ the, character. <laughs> the amount of time it's like Disney's first LGBT character over yes. the years. <laughs> Mine is like maybe, maybe I saw this on TikTok. The discussion of probably Pleakley from Lilo Stitch is probably because Pleakley is definitely mm-hmm. like a agenda fluidity to Pleakley in Lilo and Stitch. Okay. But if we're putting Pleakley aside, <laughs> second, this is probably actually. But now it feels like it's kind of like a boy who cried wolf situation where I think a lot of people yeah. are not believing when people Mm -hmm. are saying no genuinely there is representation (laughs) in this film (laughs) we're not lying this time (laughs) yeah 
Uh, and I will say, I disagree slightly um, okay. to wrap up this view. I, I do think there are reasons to see this in the cinema. Uh, I thought the actual visualization of The Strange World was beautiful. I I mean, the whole thing, mm. and we talk about this in the interview, is that it's meant to be inspired by like to the traditions of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and these like great science fiction writers. And I think that does come across on screen. I loved, there were certain, like, scenes where every new creature that popped up, I was like, what the fuck is that? Wow. Oh, my God. That's so weird. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So I think think visually, this is Disney, you know, high-quality-looking movie. I think for me, maybe the story emotionally i didn't get that like punch in the gut that you get so mm. often with the disney movies where you're like oh, oh my god uh that's kind of where the situation is for me i mean is there anything else you wanted to add about i don't know any vocal performances or, or anything i like jkg um in, in the role i thought he was very good very enthusiastic <laughs> um uh and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to talk about Splat. I'm going to give you 97 seconds now. Clarice Lockery, the floor is yours. <laughs> talk about what you love about the comedic sidekick, the highlight of the film, no doubt. <laughs> Splat. Well, this is interesting because there's a dog, and I loved the dog. Like a three-legged <laughs> oh, yes. dog. Legend. Legend. Very cute. <laughs> but Splat is like this little it looks it looks like a splat. Or yeah. maybe kind of like a little germ thing. Um and uh they there's no voice actor to splat um it, it's just computer generated sounds and i'll tell you why i said in the interviews that i asked them because it sounded to me like chip and dale like you know like i was like oh it sounds like chip and dale chipmunk sounds and the directors did not know what the sounds are <laughs> they were just <laughs> delivered a packet of noises and they're like cool <laughs> <laughs> but i i I think that, yeah, Splat is such a classic. Like, you were kind of saying it's familiar, but I, I think what's nice about Splat is that he's classic. You know, he yeah. is in tr- the tradition of every, like, adorable animal sidekick. And there's even a line where somebody's like, oh my god, I want to merchandise it! <laughs> <laughs> and as I was leaving the screening, I saw a little girl already with a Splat soft toy. I didn't even know, I don't know where she got it from. <laughs> I didn't think they were in production yet. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I can't. I I will always love the splat of any Disney movie. So <laughs> I am weak to it. <laughs> so I guess let's, let's wrap up and, mm-hmm. and give our screen stream or skip on Strange World. Amon, what's your judgment? Stream. I hear what you're saying about the animation, but I feel like you can almost say that about any Disney animation at this point. It's always high quality, um, which is not like, <laughs> I'm not trying to damn it with fake praise. Like this is definitely, the animation is really, really good. Mm. But within the whole wide scheme of things, I'm, I'm going to say stream. I would lean slightly towards screen. But yeah, if if you're somebody who's not overly fussed about Disney animated movies and you don't want to see every single one, I think this is the one that you can, you know, wait till it's on Disney Plus for. Hmm. I'll say that. <laughs> so, from Splat 
to blood splatter. <laughs> it's bones and all. When the cops get here, you have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Take a look at your feet down 16 deep. There's dead men's bows, 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 bows. Take them up. Do, do, do. Take them up. Do, do, do. Take them home. Take them home. They've living six feet deep. Um, that's a band. That's a song from one of my favorite bands, Dead Man's Bones. Happens to be Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I was two years band. old when I found out that Ryan Gosling has a band. Mm. To be fair, incredible. they only released one album, but it's the greatest, one of the greatest albums I've ever heard in my life. It's all Halloween wow. songs. Wow, that's that's a big statement right there. Um, oh, it's so good. <laughs> Uh, but we are here to talk about Burns and All. Uh, love blossoms between a young woman on the margins of society and a disenfranchised drifter as they embark on a 3,000-mile odyssey through the back roads of America. However, despite their best efforts, all those lead back to their terrifying past and a final stand that will determine whether their love can survive their differences. This is directed by Luca Guadagnino, with a screenplay by David Kajanich. Uh, Burns and All is based on a book by Camille D'Angelis, and it stars Taylor Russell. Timothée Chalamet, uh, Mark Rylance, Michael Stuhlbarg, Andre Holland, and David Gordon Green. Uh, unfortunately, I did not get a chance to see this one because Mans was busy in it. Um, but Clarice Lockery insisted, nay begged, uh, for Burns and All to be part of this podcast because she had seen it and she had loved it. Um, Clarice, where to begin with this I mean, I can already say you're probably not going to like it because. Oh, really? <laughs> because because it's why? Quite, it's quite the the cannibal scenes. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay, because this wasn't really in the synopsis. So that cannibals, that's like a big part of this movie. Um, okay. Is Taylor Russell's Marin is a woman sort of coming to terms with a fact. It is ultimately a movie about safe self hatred and how to live with shame because she's a woman who has an impulse to eat human flesh and she cannot, you know, she can't not do it. And Mm. obviously that (laughs) is a very difficult thing to live with. And she's kind of drifting across America and she meets uh, different individuals as Mark Rylance's Sully is this guy who, who kind of presents himself as a harmless old eccentric, but he's actually like, a lot more sinister and she clocks that immediately uh but then she meets lee who is timothee chalamet's character who uh and they fall in love obviously because it's timothee chalamet <laughs> does timothee uh, chalamet also have a predilection he's for also flesh? a cannibal yeah she mostly meets cannibals along the road uh and the cannibal scenes are like sparse i would say it's not you know it's not a film filled with gore, but they are very... It's the sound design. Because <laughs> oh. I don't know. Did you watch Suspiria, the, the Guadagnino Suspiria remake? Yeah, I did. Didn't much like it. So the the mirror scene 
where she's in the room and like her bones are snapping mm-hmm. there's that sound it's the bone crunch is something that luca is incredibly good at <laughs> and so in the cannibal scenes what i find interesting is not the traditional depiction where i think you expect like oh it's like the bodies are explode and all the intestines are going everywhere it's genuinely just people like taking a little chomp out of like taking an, an arm and just going chomp <laughs> but the noises are horrific and there's this one shot of mark rylance's sully and he's just eating somebody and he's in his white underpants like wiping the blood off <laughs> and suddenly like a piece of skin like falls from his chin and it the splat it just goes on the floor and it's repulsive like it's so incredibly well done and yet simultaneously is such a beautiful romantic film which is why I'm thinking you wouldn't like it because it's it's like I feel like you you would be too upset by the cannibalism (laughs) to appreciate the love the love between Marin and Lee (laughs) I mean, you're saying that the cannibal scenes aren't, thank God, sparse. Um, yes. So, so maybe maybe that will help me through. This sounds like a really delightful double bill with fresh. Um, <laughs> this film could make. Um, but let's talk about the performances because I am a big fan of Taylor Russell. Like her performance in Waves, which is not a film that was talked about enough as far as I was concerned. Uh, when it came out, I thought it was sensational. I thought that she was incredible in it. That was the first time I really did. And I was like, who is this woman? Um, and honestly, that is probably the biggest reason why I want to check this out. Uh, how is she? And talk about the chemistry between her and Mr. Chalamet. Yeah, they are. They're great together because I, I think it's, they're both quite subdued, quite subdued performance, especially for Timmy, mm. because we know Timmy. <laughs> Very charismatic guy. And he's still charismatic in this, but I think because they're both playing, yeah, as I said, people filled with a great, great shame, It's the, the performances are very locked in. And I think mm. Taylor Russell especially, she, oh, there's something about her performance that I just loved where it's, it's you can feel her kind of growing into herself over the course of the film without her like sort of doing anything obvious and and you can feel the like the the, there's this weird irony in the movie where it's like they're so yeah they're so self-hating and they're so beaten down by that but also it's like the power of being like a killer there's like a level of narcissism to that right and mm. and so i think in both of those main performances you you're seeing people kind of tussle with that and and it's like there's this thing in her eye where she's like i don't know i don't know what to do with this power and it's so it's so brilliantly done and they're so great together and there's this really heartbreaking scene where they it's quite early on when they've just met and mm. Lee just turns around to Eriska after they've both established that they're cannibals. <laughs> like she's seen him covered in blood, very established that they're cannibals, and he just turns to her and goes, "Do you think I'm nice?" 
And then she's like, yeah, do you think I'm nice? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> they literally murder people. And it's like kind of funny, <laughs> but it's so sad. They still feel like they have to ask each other that. It's like that, it's sort of that kind of relationship movie where they're both trying to heal each other. And it's it's really pure in a very strange way. Yeah, I can see why this film appealed to you. <laughs> um, final thing I want to ask about, um, the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, two of the best working today. Uh, I've loved their tandems on a lot of recent stuff, including Soul and what was that um, film with Gary Oldman? Was it Mank? Yeah, the know. David Fincher. I think that was yeah, them, wasn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, 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 that was them as well. I love their score on that. Um, what's the music like on this and how does it work within the film? It's, yeah, it's great because it's a combination of, I guess we associate them mostly with sort of the electronic, like there's like a buzz, like that. I'm not very good mm-hmm. at describing music. <laughs> <laughs> but that's usually your job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's sort of like the, yeah, like the very... Uh, disconcerting electronic like <laughs> hum to it but also because this is a road trip movie across america there's like a there's these elements of folksiness to it and there's a folk song that they wrote that's in the movie that's very nice and and yeah quite traditionally beautiful and i i like the mix flipping between the two because it it captures yeah the two sides of the movie the horror mm. of the the cannibalism and the beauty of the love it's is really well done um and if you listen to the soundtrack on spotify they've like kept in all the sounds of screaming oh wow <laughs> so i Delightful. was like let me put it on while i'm working because <laughs> it's quite <laughs> soothing in parts and then it's like this sounds like a delightful family <laughs> film um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations. Clarice, I think I know which way you're leaning. I mean, screen. I'm going to see it again today. I'm taking my friend to see it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, go, go and traumatize someone else. No, joking. Um, I've heard, like, you know, people say, like, this is, like, their favorite film of the year. It's, it's on that level. Is, 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 that, what, yeah, is that what you are, Yeah, it's too? in contention. I'm having to do my top ten this week, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to make an appearance on almost certain okay interesting will it be crowds of the future though we'll see see. (laughs) yeah well i mean i haven't seen um burns nor yet but crimes of the future is far 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 away from my top 10 of the year (laughs) (laughs) if we're talking about scores of the year then we can have that conversation but the film itself not for me um I don't think any transition exists for the next film we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to say, here is the trailer for She Said. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Let's interrogate the whole system. Hi, my name is Jody Cantor. I'm an investigative reporter for The New York Times. What have you got? I was told that the wrongdoing in Hollywood is overwhelming. I don't want to be quoted. Period. Understood. In your previous stories. How did you persuade women to tell you what had happened to them? A case I made was, I can't change what happened to you in the past. But together we may be able to help protect other people. The truth, basically. 
This is, uh, she said, uh, so the New York Times journalist Megan Tui and Jody Cantor published a report that exposes sexual abuse allegations against powerful Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. The shocking story also serves as a launching pad for the Me Too movement, shattering decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault and harassment. Directed by Maria Schrader with a screenplay by Rebecca Lenkiewicz, she said is based on Cantor and Tui's investigation coupled with their book of the same name. It stars Carrie Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, Patricia Clarkson, Andre Brower, Jennifer Ely, Samantha Morton, and Ashley Judd. Uh, so I, I guess I'm maybe I'll start with I w- saw this yesterday. I went to my local Odeon to watch mm. it. Um, there's a guy eating snacks the whole way through, and I kind of felt mm. like men should not be allowed to snack during this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a different, separate thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I will say, I, I came in with a lot of like slightly negative preconceptions of it because I. I think even me reading to the synopsis I read is like the official synopsis and it's very like this was the the thing that changed everything mm-hmm. and I think a lot of women would be like mm, did it <laughs> did it you know as as incredible and powerful and and moving um this story was and and the breaking of this news was did feel momentous at the time I think it is difficult for a lot of women to look back now and feel like for all that it achieved, what did it really achieve? I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. Um, and so I was a bit like, Oh, is this, am I going to go, we go in and it's going to be a very like, like pompous, like self-congratulatory Hollywood thing of, well, we fixed our problems <laughs> mm-hmm. and everything in Hollywood is fine now. But so here comes the but this movie's not that and i was really pleasantly surprised by how it handled the story because to me it's not really a story about weinstein it's about a the journalism but b like the difficulty the more general difficulty of getting people to speak up uh in instances of like great abuses of power and that I thought it was beautifully handled and I found it incredibly moving just how how they they showed these journalists and and what they did to to try and show these women to be like I understand why you don't want to speak out but also if you do speak out we can do something something will change uh so I'm sorry I've talked a lot um no. I wondered, I wondered if, did you come in thinking maybe it was going to be a certain way or how did it kind of brush up against your assumptions of what a movie about the Me Too movement would look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, My assumptions going in, just trying to think of what they were. Or maybe you had no assumptions. You might have just been... I mean, I... I had heard mixed things about this uh, going in, so I was a little bit unsure about what to expect in a certain regard. I know that I wanted, I didn't want it to sensationalise and Hollywoodize what the story was. And I think the film did a very good job of not doing that. That was good. At the same time, sort of, I've been thinking a lot about this after having watched it. 
it's a tricky thing because it feels like there was clearly a decision made. We are going to go on the strength of what happened and what the story was, and we're going to stick to that. And in many respects, that kind of works when you have actors who are as charismatic and compelling as Carrie Mulligan and as Zoe Kazan at the center of this. Um, there's a lot of stuff within that that worked. At the same time, easily the most powerful moments in this film are where a little bit of dramatic license is taken. And I think I would have liked it to have taken even more of that at points. There's the, the opening of this film is brilliant and very impactful and very, okay, this is what the story is. Here's what the broad context is. And we're going to hopefully sort of fill in the gaps and give you more details. And I think it's too much of a spoiler to say what the opening is. So I'm going to say it. Um, you got a young woman this is in the 90s on a Harvey Weinstein set. She's clearly living her dream. It's a big moment for her. Then it smash cuts to her running away, tears in her eyes, all, all, all the rest of it. That's really, really attention-worthy and grabbing. And it's really creative filmmaking. The other bit of creative filmmaking that really stayed with me watching this film, they basically have a woman on voiceover um, saying what Harvey did to her. And we get like a 45 to 60 seconds of that as the visuals transition from one hotel room to another, to another, to another. And honestly, I was like, how long is this going to go for? Like, it, it really felt icky and uncomfortable in the way that it was intended to be, obviously. And that really came through the screen. Everything else about it, it works to a degree because you have, again, the story, the power of the story. And you know, me being a journalist, I'm always interested in sort of the, the, the journey it takes to get something like this published and all the rest of it. But I felt like it could have done with even more dramatic license while still being truthful to what the situation was what were your thoughts on that i i don't know it's a tricky thing mm. because i think to make it i think it might have been too difficult to watch for some people if it focused so much on that like i kind of liked that it wasn't like here's the trauma here's the trauma here's the trauma mm -hmm. because I think for lots of people in the audience don't maybe don't need to be told that and don't want to be told that because it's it, it was the whole period where everything was coming out with that was was so awful mm -hmm. that I think I had reservations of like I don't really want to go back and have to listen to the stories again and not in I don't mean that in a disrespectful way but it was so difficult to hear them the first time mm -hmm. that I kind of was a little relieved to be like, okay, this is a movie about journalism. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. That's actually quite nice. And, and it wasn't, I liked actually some of the choices I really liked were like, there's a scene where Megan and Jody are going to um, interview Gwyneth Paltrow mm -hmm. uh, and they both turn up in like the same white dress or they're both wearing mm -hmm. white dresses. Cause they've obviously, you know, the film, you know, takes them so seriously and and is so in awe of the work that they do, but it also acknowledges that they're human beings and that, like, if you were going to interview Gwyneth Paltrow, you're going to dress up whether or not you're intending to do so. And they have this moment where they both look at each other and they're like, 
oh yeah we've dressed up really fabulously for this <laughs> you look yeah. great you look great and i was like what a beautiful touch like that it really reminds us that they had to live this 24 7 and they can't they have there has to be some levity because you don't survive mm -hmm. other, outside of that to your point there's a really good bit sort of early on where Kai Mulligan's character, she's just given birth and she's going through postpartum depression. They kind of abandoned that storyline halfway through, but it was really working for me and Kai Mulligan was acting the hell out of it and it added to the story because it reinforced again that these women were humans. They had to be dealing with a lot while still dealing with this. I would have liked them to carry on that storyline a little bit more than they do. True, although I, I liked that it was a story about, it was about mothers, but there was no conflict. Yeah. It's like the fact that their mothers did not impact their work because they had the partners, the two dads in the situation, stepped up when they needed to. They understood how important it was. Like there wasn't this mm -hmm. like, you're neglecting your family because yeah. just mm -hmm. every, even the kids, I feel like understood in that situation, like mm -hmm. how important it was for, mm. for mommy to do her job. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. You, you 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 touched on it sort of earlier, but when you're watching a film like this, dealing with what it's dealing with, what's going through your mind when a few seconds after you hear see that end call about you know what happened with Harvey Weinstein in real life, etc., you then see the words produced by Brad Pitt. Well, yes, I was going to bring this up. I think yeah. it's 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 tough because. You know, the the allegations against Brad Pitt came out, when when did they come out? Sort of more this year during summer, I almost want to say. So when mm. this had wrapped, had been made, and it, yeah, it does, it does feel uncomfortable to see that. And at the same time, I think I had to go, well, look, I, I don't want to dismiss or put aside the work mm -hmm. that Maria Schreider and everybody in this movie did um, just because of one guy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it's, it's good that you brought it up and I think it's important to acknowledge mm -hmm. that, yeah, that name will be in the credits, but I, yeah, I just, I, it, it would break my heart to dismiss it just and and all the you know because this it feels like it's it's interesting this movie felt to me is like the women of hollywood saying thank you to megan and jody for for doing what they did mm -hmm. and it didn't feel like hollywood as a whole you know panning itself on the back i think because there were so many women in the behind the scenes uh mm -hmm. making of this and also on screen and all these performances you see all these actors uh all these actresses who you know how every all of them will have their own stories um i mean not, i'm not saying about weinstein but just about their experiences in hollywood all coming mm -hmm. together to be like yeah thank these these two women did as cynical as i am you know they did change stuff for people in hollywood they didn't fix the system but they exposed the system at least mm -hmm. I would, I would have loved this to have been the rule going forward rather than it feeling like an anomaly given what's still happened in the years after this. I mean, we mentioned it a couple of months ago, but David Russell has a movie coming out with a lot of big name actors working in it. Louis C.K. just won a Grammy. 
Mel Gibson is still a thing. You know, Hollywood hasn't changed all that much um, post Weinstein. Um, so it would have felt disingenuous if this film was a pat and soft on the back thing. So it's, it's good that they didn't go in that direction. Yeah, and I, I like that it focused on how difficult it is to expose people because, um, you know, so many... There's like a combination of, of people fear for their career and, you know, it's 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 not just, oh, I'll lose my job. It's like, I will lose the entire thing I have built my existence around. Like, that's mm-hmm. difficult. But also, you know, there's as a genuine fear for physical safety as as well you know these women are terrified um and i i think it i think it did a really good job of of just making people understand like why because that's always the question it's in the movie a lot why didn't she report it they they have to ask that question because it's like part of their jobs the jody and megan have to ask why didn't you go report it Mm. And this movie does a really good job of making people understand why that didn't happen. Or sometimes where it did. I mean, Rose McGowan, um, they mentioned a few times, told her manager immediately and nothing was done about it. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's very good at exposing, yeah, like the, the system behind it. Um, but I guess before before we move on, we haven't super talked about the performances, especially Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, who I just think are two wonderful actors and I love so much. I mean, what did you think of them in this movie? I loved them. I loved them. I thought they were great. Um, you know, I was, as we were about to hear, uh, Andrew advised we were talking about comedy and being comedic while being truthful. And I feel like there's a couple of moments where both Kay Mulligan and Zoe Kazan managed to do that really, really well. And in a film like this, where it's so heavy, you do need those moments of levity. Uh, so I, I really like that. Um, and I, obviously I know it's not this is not a film about the men, um, but I loved Andre Broher for a while. Uh, I'm a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan. It took and... me. <laughs> I will say, when he first popped up on screen, I was like, is that? What? <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a couple of like just a scene or two to to kind of con- uh, to, to <laughs> just deal with that fact because mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite. I mean, he's very funny in Brooklyn Nine Nine, but it's such yeah. a comedic role. And here, obviously, he's not playing yeah. the same character. But even then, like like he made me laugh just by how just by how no BS he was a couple of yes. times like okay we're done now I'm hanging up bye <laughs> and that did make me chuckle um but yeah I, I will always happily uh, see him on screen I thought I think he's fantastic and I thought he was really good here too yeah and I think Patricia Clarkson as well so him mm. her and um Andre played the kind of the editors I don't know what their specific jobs were I'm gonna be honest yeah, but yeah. they are like the supervising that. editors that work above uh Carrie and Zoe's characters mm-hmm. and I think like I don't know if it's I don't know how the New York Times is but <laughs> maybe it's an idealized portrait of how journalism works but it's definitely how journalism should work mm-hmm. and the way that the editors support the journalists mm-hmm. is like there's something really like beautiful about that yeah. about the cooperation um take no the- editors I work with no. you're all lovely people and I love you <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, before we wrap, I guess I want to 
just give a shout out to Ashley Judd, who stars mm. as herself, and I cannot imagine that was an easy thing to do. So yeah. I think yeah. it's a very, um, I don't know, I don't want to say brave, because that's such a fucking like, overused word, but I, mm. I think it was really powerful that she made that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think we're moving on to screen stream or skip on Mm -hmm. she said and what what's your take Hmm. i really liked it i'm gonna say stream um i'm gonna say screen with a caveat that it is it is difficult it was very draining to watch Hmm. um and i did want to punch the guy next to me he he was eating malwams he had a giant bag of malwams the individual rappers and (sighs) i was like Maybe if we were watching like a Marvel movie, I would have been mm-hmm. more forgiving of that. But like, you should not be allowed. <laughs> like, <laughs> there should be some sort of rule where like men are just not allowed to eat snacks while watching. She said, <laughs> um, and yeah, I also kept laughing a bit. So I was like, "Is that funny?" I don't think it. Like, not super inappropriate parts, but hmm. things that I was like, I don't know if you you should not be allowed to be here. So. <laughs> <laughs> You should have to stream. Security! Get it on it! So, yeah, I would say screen if you feel up to it, but I would put a bit of a warning. I, yeah, I found it very difficult to watch. So, maybe a stream where it's a bit more comfortable, a bit more, you're not going to have people fucking snagging nice to you. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, I just feel, I feel like I can't do transitions, as she said. Um, yeah. But. Hey, we're about to get... You were talking about how Strange World had a lack of songs. There are <laughs> no lack of songs in Matilda! <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a little girl who was trapped. This is the story of her great escape. Matilda, my name's Miss Honey. Miss, it's hurting my head. <laughs> Is maths your favourite thing? What I really like is reading. It's like a holiday in your head. Your mind, Matilda. Your parents must think they've won the lottery with a child like you. Oh, yeah. They just love me at home. Do you want to hear about my first day at school? Yeah, I'd rather eat vegetables. Now get to bed, you little bookworm. We are revolting children living in revolting times. We sing revolting songs using revolting vibes. We'll be revolting children till our revolting's done. And we'll have the trash ball bolting. We're revolting. Woo! Take a hockey stick and use it as a sword. That's my favorite line <laughs> in the entire movie. <laughs> that is the trailer for Matilda, the musical, which tells the story of an extraordinary girl with a vivid imagination who dares to take a stand to change her story with miraculous results. This is directed by Matthew Walters with a screenplay by Dennis Kelly. The film, is an ab- the film is an adaptation of the musical by Matthew Walters, Dennis Kelly, and Tim Minchin, and it is itself based on the book by Roald Dahl, and it stars Alicia Weir, Lashana Lynch, Stephen Graham, Andrea Riseborough, and Emma Thompson. But let's backtrack a second to Andrea Riseborough, who is... One of our guests on this week's Fade to Back pod. We also, of course, had Emma Thompson, Dame Emma Thompson, as our guest a few months ago for Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which is on my list of top 10 films this year. I think it is. We just that need Lashana. 
circle. And Stephen Graham as well. Oh, yes. Uh, all in good time. But Andrea Riseborough, who is, for me, the most chameleonic actress, actor working today. I think she's absolutely brilliant. I never know what to expect from her. I didn't know to expect this from her because this is a more comedic role than we're used to seeing her in. Um, I speak about it in the interview that we do, but she is the queen of psychological thrillers uh, and she is very good at doing them. Uh, so yeah, it was cool to see her Andy. flex her. <laughs> yes, indeed. It was cool to see her flex her comedic bone uh, with this film. And she's, she's great. She also has an incredible wardrobe. Uh, we talked about that as well. So this is it. Me, Andrea Weisberg. I think I think I tried to tell me she's she's such a chameleon. She may have shapeshifted into somebody else right before my eyes. Um, but I think I tried to Andrew Weisberg, and I think it went well. Here it is. Welcome to the Faith by Podcast, Andrew Weisberg. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I'm a big fan, so very happy to talk to you today. Um, and congratulations on your performance in Matilda. You're having so much fun, and it's coming through the screen. Yeah. Um, when was the first time you encountered Matilda? Because there's been a book, there's been a film, there's been a musical. I think as a, I think the book as a child. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I read the entire book when I was a child, but I, I, I remember being familiar with, I think perhaps we read a bit of it in school, being mm. very familiar with it when I was little. Um, and, I, and I was certainly aware of the whole story. Of course, have since many times read it yeah. <laughs> um, in its entirety. And then... Um, I'm not sure how old I was when the film came out, but you know there was the Danny DeVito, yeah. Danny DeVito, Rio Perlman. Um, I, I mentioned the Wormwoods because that's closest to my mind at the minute. Yeah. Um, adaptation of the film, which was very American take yeah. on quite a British story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to have it back on these shores, but have it have an international outreach. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, again. And, and it's also interesting making a film about a musical. I mean, we're mm-hmm. making a, yeah. it's an extension of the musical, which has mm-hmm. captured so many hearts. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the musical before you saw this? No, which was great. Oh, interesting. Which was absolutely perfect because mm. um, I'm always in fear of accidentally stealing things, you know, mm. ideas, <laughs> people's <laughs> yeah. voices. Um a bit like a sponge. So I try to, in order to, you know, perhaps create something else or do something different, I'll step away from watching many incarnations of something that's gone before that I'm about to do myself. Yeah. It felt very, very unique as I was watching it. It doesn't. Was part of the reason why you wanted to take this on the comedic element of it as well? Because I haven't seen you do much of that before. Oh, yeah. Well, I start, yeah, I did a lot of comedy. When I first left Rada, I, I did a lot of comedy. I, I continue to do a lot of... Um, I always want to do a lot of comedy. Mm. I think perhaps the key to it being particularly funny is when you're absolutely dead serious about it as a character, you know, because that's what yeah. makes it hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so roles like Mrs. Wormwood or Svetlana Stalin in Death of Stalin... Mm are both examples of two people taking their, their own tastes and um, agendas incredibly seriously, actually, which is why it's so hysterically funny sometimes. And yeah. with Svetlana, the irony is is painful and, and more poignant than mm-hmm. Miss, Mrs. Wormwood, yeah. who just really takes her nails very seriously. Yeah, yeah. To your point, 
One of my favorite line readings of the entire year is from you in The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, when you say, I'm not shouting, Claire. I'm explaining with force, which is fantastic. I love that. I, I remember it because I'm like, oh. I need to find a way to use that in regular conversation at some point. It's so good. I love oh, that. We had such a wonderful time making that <laughs> film. Yes, and that's another example of a really comedic role. But you could only play Caroline with total seriousness yeah. because she is so very committed to pulling everybody up by the bootstraps yeah. in the family. Absolutely. Um, and you also, in this film, you find the truth within the comedy as well, which I really, really like. Which is also what makes it so funny, isn't it? Because yeah. it's when it seems, I, I always think when comedy seems incredibly performative or it lacks authenticity, it's just not quite as yeah. incredible. You know, if you think of mm -hmm. the, the best moments of, uh, Steve's Alan Partridge, you know, it's so painful because we've all met that guy on a bus mm -hmm. uh, or, yeah. you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and, and it, yeah, it's so, it's what, what makes it so funny is the awkwardness and the reality mm -hmm. of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, your screen partner for most of the film is Stephen Graham. Yeah. I should probably talk about him because he's also having a lot of fun. What conversations <laughs> were you guys having about your husband-wife dynamic, but also the parent-child uh, dynamic uh, in this film? What's really wonderful about working with Stephen is um, he absolutely dives in, which is yeah. what I love to do. <laughs> we talk very little, we're both very instinctive, mm. and we went about, we talked very, we talked loads about everything else <laughs> <laughs> that was going on in life. But we talked very little about the Wormwoods and, and just really started to play. And nice. um, such an aff word as an actor to use, you know, play, <laughs> just started to play. But, um, but that's what it's about, really, about being open and playful mm. um, if you're going to play characters like the Wormwoods. And I couldn't have asked for a just more brilliant partner in crime to do that with than Stephen. Mm. Are there any off-camera moments that stick out to you? Because you guys look like you're having the best time and I cannot wait for the blooper reel. <laughs> there are, but I'm, I I wouldn't, I don't think I'd tell you them. <laughs> oh. There are, yeah, 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 no. The things mm. that really make you laugh, you know, from your toes are always like the really, really true things. And when you start explaining those in junkets, then you've pretty much lost your privacy. <laughs> it's okay, okay. Off camera, <laughs> when, the, when the camera's out rolling, we'll talk, we'll talk, let's go. Um, Mrs. Wormwood has an obsession with ballroom dancing. Yeah. And I know that you are a trained dancer. Yes. What was it like to get back into those skills and how long would it take you to get back into the flow of that? Very, very dif dif difficult. Oh, really? <laughs> it was um, because I'm trained in, uh, you know, classical ballet more than anything. Yeah. And so that's, you know, my forte or whatever. Um, and it's also rusty, like incredibly rusty. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done it for ages. Mm. I do, I do keep in, I keep, you know, I keep at it now and then. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different realm than, you know, Latin ballroom, which is, mm. um, Aliash gave me this advice. It's, you have to imagine you're standing at a bus stop waiting, you know, in mm. Latin ballroom, you've got to stand with your hip out. Mm. When you're a classical dancer, everything's pulled in very much, you know, gotcha. and so Aliash would give, gave me the advice, encouraged me to, you know, mm. just yeah. get into my hips a bit more. <laughs> it's a very yeah. different form of dance. Mm. Um, 
But it was really, really wonderful. Yeah, we tra- we act. There's a number that's not in there that we tra- I trained for about three months for, um, and that was such. It was no. so glorious. <laughs> well, it was so glorious and um, so wonderful to um, sing again, and you know, and again, yeah. I, I do sing, but again, more, more classical training yeah. there as well. So yeah. very different to do something that was kind of. Musical theatre. Yeah. See, now that you told me this, what I'm going to do after this interview, I'm going to go on Twitter. Hopefully, it still exists. <laughs> I'm going to do a hashtag, and I'm going to say release the Weisberg Cup because I want to see. <laughs> the, you, you trained all this time; it needs to be seen. Damn it, that's not right. Um, we cannot talk about this role without talking about Mrs. Wormwood's wardrobe because yeah. it is fantastic. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite? Part, favorite outfit that you got to wear, and more importantly, did you keep anything? You just made me think of one really, really funny day when Lashana and I were standing next to each other, and Lashana's like, "Yeah, I don't really dress like Miss Honey." I was like, "Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't really dress like this either." <laughs> Talk about complete. You know, I mean, it was. It's very strange wearing, firstly, that many clothes all at once, mm. <laughs> because Mrs. Wormwood is as as. You know, she, you could say that she was um, quite exposed, and she is, in a way, a bit, but there's mm. so much hair. There are yeah. so many things hanging off her, earrings, eyelashes, things that aren't actually attached to her body, you know, mm. in yeah. really, without glue. <laughs> so much sort of sitting yeah. on her, and I'm sure Emma had the same experience because Emma was, like, you know, probably three times heavier with, the, um, <laughs> with her costume and her prosthetic and her shoes yeah. and everything else on and a mm-hmm. hammer. Um, but it 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 felt like um, it felt hard to drag around. It yeah. felt hard to drag. It felt like being a Christmas tree, <laughs> you know. It felt like you yeah. were just a walking Christmas tree, and it was difficult to maneuver in the world. And also, yeah. it keeps it. It's a great um, barrier between you and everybody else. Mm. So it also stops anything being too intimate, you know. <laughs> you can really keep yourself at arm's length, mm. and that's how Mrs. Wormwood lives her life, you know. Yeah. Ah, no, I love that. Um, you know, in prepping for this interview, I came across a tweet that said that you are the queen of psychological thrillers, which I completely agree with. Add that to your CV because it's 100% right. When you are, because I imagine you get offered a lot of those types of roles because you're so good at them. What's the difference between a psychologically, physically demanding role that you pass on and one that earns your interest? Um, the, the people. Um, so the people, mm. the creative people behind it, the team, the reason that um, the movie's being made, uh, the quality of the material, um, the intentions of everybody involved. Mm. Those are really the things that draw me to it. And I'm I'm interested in so many different types of cinema that um, I'm really willing to be in kind of any genre. Um, And I think that's probably helpful, having that openness, because it, because it, then lets you explore lots of different things and have lots of different experiences as well in the world. One of the great privileges of doing my job is the amount that I get to see and tra- you know traveling and mm. meeting people all over the place and mm. hearing sto- hearing people's stories, you know, and then and then reflecting them in some way. So mm-hmm. I think those are things that draw me to wanting to be involved in a project. And sometimes I. I, I there are loads of projects that have all of those things and I still don't do them. Mm. Um, but I get offered an awful lot of very different things, um, which is probably maybe, well, maybe my greatest achievement for myself because I always wanted to um, 
you know, I, I, I have no interest in being pigeonholed. I want to be challenged constantly. And I especially like working with directors who challenge me. And Matthew Walker, who directed Matilda, is an extraordinary theatre director as well as a film director. So mm -hmm. working with him was, you know, it's like working with a maestro, you know. Mm. He's sort of conducting this ginormous orchestra. And it really was ginormous on Matilda. We had, I think, mm. 200 and something kids. Wow. It was, <laughs> it was vast and sprawling. Everyone lining up to get COVID tested, you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, it was amazing mm. that, it, that we managed to pull the whole thing off. Mm. And I think now, and it's so worth it because now more than ever, we need a film like this. We need a, like a celebration, a joyful celebration mm. um, that comes out of, of a little darkness. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. Um, to your point, one of the, and I think you're absolutely right in that, you get offered so many different things and you are, for me, the most chameleonic actor working today. Uh, I never know what to expect from you and that is a huge compliment to you. I think, what conversations are you having with your agent project to project? Because it feels like it's just like, give me the most different thing to what I've just done mm -hmm. and let me do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I keep off a market, which is, is incredible. Mm. Yes, yeah, sometimes it is difficult to put into context. Mm. Um, one of the funniest calls I think I ever had with one of my agents was, she said back to me, you're gonna do what now in a forest with Nick Cage? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I'd sort of stalked the director. He'd made a, a previous film um, that had gone to Tribeca, I think. Um, and that film was so dark that everybody, I think, except Cronenberg had left the screening. <laughs> I think he was oh, wow. the, only, the only man standing at the end. <laughs> Um, but really, really a visionary director, Panos, mm. who directed Mandy. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm f just very, very director driven. And, and, and if, mm. there's, if there's a pearl, I, I, I'm really excited to work with people who have uncompromising vision. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they're always uncompromising people, you know. Yeah. Panos <laughs> is the most open, gentle, collaborative person, but he mm. has this uncompromising vision, which is what keeps his material authentic. And I think mm. Matthew Walkers has that. Yeah. And everything that he creates has a lot of heart. Yeah. 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 Have you ever been recognized on the street? And what, what are those interactions like, if so? Yes. Um, Interesting. Uh, really wonderful, you know, yeah. really wonderful. I mean, normally from, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always different. It's always, mm. always different. Um, but, but if people are interested in talking about the work, then I'm always really interested to talk to, yeah. to, talk to people, mm. you know. Yeah, we'll take a photograph or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I found this chat very interesting. So thank you for taking thank the time. You. And your advice, bro. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Lovely right. to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what? I'm tired of getting asked this question, particularly as the last time this question was asked to Clarice, you said, yes, there were too many songs. So Clarice. Oh, yes. Were there too many songs in Matilda the Musical? <laughs> no, I think there was a really good amount. Um, and... I know that they cut a, a couple of tracks, but I I think that was the right decision. Um, I, yeah, transitioning. Like I, I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna make a confession. 
I don't really like Matilda as a story. I, uh, we can get into it. I find it a bit problematic and ick. I, I don't love it. But I really liked this and I still gave this a good rating when I reviewed it because I that this is a very well-made musical movie. And in a landscape where it's very rare <laughs> to see those, <laughs> very rare watched spirited recently it's not a well-made musical (laughs) (laughs) i get very excited when i watch just a classic well-directed well-staged well-choreographed big screen musical so i'm putting aside my matilda feelings (laughs) for now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i had a decent time with it um these songs they're not like oh, I need to find the soundtrack immediately after watching this film and listen to back to these songs. But they are fun. Like, in advance of this pod, uh, I listened back to a couple of tracks. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. When I Grow Up, good song. Revolting Children, yeah. good song. Um, so, yeah, there, there's some there's some bangers here. And they're really well delivered. The choreography of a couple of the numbers are really well done. There's a number in a school. Uh, and the kids are doing the damn thing. It's really, really well done. Uh, is so that I, in Revolting Children when they it's going around um, TikTok when they're dancing down the hallway and they're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what they're doing. It's insane. That children are so talented. <laughs> it made me want to. I got like, I I filled me with self hatred watching this movie because uh, those kids are so talented. And I, when I was their age. What the fuck was I doing? Nothing. Honestly, Chloe, sort your life out. It's, just, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not impressive, is it? Come on now. Well, let's get into it. This, you're, you, you are, I mean, you just admitted that you are the world's uh, most foremost Matilda hater. Um, so so yeah. let's, let's get into that. <laughs> what, what don't you like about Matilda? And did this film do anything to offset, offset that? No, but I think it's maybe something you can't really change about Matilda because it's quite fundamental. But the thing I just don't, I've never really liked is that, so she, her her parents are like the anti-reading, anti-intellectual, like boo-having thoughts <laughs> parents. And then Matilda goes off to the school where she learns about literature and learning and education as like magical pure things and i have always hated the fact that the parents are the only people who don't have posh accents even Mm. matilda but this has been a thing in like every adaptation even matilda has she's like i guess the parents are meant to be it kind of seems like they're they're not working class but they're like nouveau middle class because they have this very like over decorated house with lots of like gilded things and wallpaper i thought the house was really fun and i would live there (laughs) but i think as an audience we're meant to think that it's like trashy right and we're meant to think that the parents are very trashy um but then yeah it's like why does that little girl have such a like a posh like boarding school child accent and and there's like a weird i don't know it just gives me like weird class things of oh look at these like dumbass <laughs> they should be posh like else and go to boarding school um but you know this is the thing that classism is quite rife throughout world dolls 
writing. <laughs> mm. And I think it's incredibly difficult to actually get rid of that when you are making any adaptation of any of his works. So I think that's why I was like, I'm going to, I'll put it aside because it, we're at a point now where Dahl is so embedded in our culture that it's a bit too late to like analyze it, I guess. But as long as we're aware, <laughs> mm. then maybe it's fine. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It just, the story just makes me feel a bit icky. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Well, Dole, I mean, they have enough time to get into it. But exactly. I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned the parents. <laughs> Stephen Graham and Andrew Riseborough are having the time of their lives in sure. this film. Um, sure, I will say that. that. Yeah, that comes through the screen in a really big, fun way. Um, it was cool because I don't see. I think you really see either of them in this role. I know Stephen Graham's been talking about it on the press tour, but like. He turned this down a couple of times. It was only when his kids said, "No, you're going to do it, aren't you?" That sort of he said, "Okay, I'll do it," um, because he was like, "You know, I'm 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 not the guy who does this sort of role." Uh, but he acquits himself very well because Stephen Graham <laughs> is that dude. He's a fantastic actor, one of the best working he today. Is that dude. Um, and yeah, Andrea Weisberg, as you said, the, the, her wardrobe is absolutely magnificent. Um, <laughs> I love I love the color, um, and yeah. I, you know, I mentioned it when we were talking about she said, but in the, in, in the interview that we just did, we talk about finding the truth within comedy. Um, I actually mentioned to I actually mentioned to her on the interview one of my favorite lines of the entire year is actually her in the Electrical Life of Louis Wayne when she has that line, "I am not shouting, Claire. I'm explaining with force," which yeah. is just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> There's not quite a line on that level in this film, but she can still tell that she's having a lot of fun. Oh, Louis Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say, Shana Lynch. Oh, yes. Voice of an angel. Voice of an angel. <laughs> I was so moved whenever she started to sing. She's such a beautiful mm. voice. I guess I feel like I've never heard her sing before. Um, yeah. Incredible voice. It was so good to see her in this role to unveil another string in her bow, really. Because... In the last couple of years, we've seen her be action woman and a really commanding presence on screen with the likes of Bond, with the likes of the Woman King, which she's fantastic in. Here, to play to play someone who's so against all of that, who's so passive for the vast majority of this film, um, and to do it well in a really endearing way, I thought was brilliant. Um, so yeah, she, she was my MVP of the movie. Uh, but Same. coming up, there's a few candidates because you got her... I, well, I'm intrigued to know, what did you think about Emma Thompson's performance and what did you think about the makeup of Trunchbull and her acting up with and or against that? Because that was interesting. I mean, I love Emma Thompson because I'm sane. Well, <laughs> who doesn't love Emma Thompson? <laughs> yeah. um, I think she was, I think she was good in the role. But again, it's like, I think with with Miss Trunchbull, it's again, it's the role. It goes back to role doll. It's like, why is the you know Miss Honey is you know feminine and good and pure and maternal, and Miss Trunchbull is like, oh, because she doesn't like children, and so she's like made to look as a caricature of like uh, like a very masculine woman, and it just mm -hmm. feels it feels icky. <laughs> again, mm -hmm. it just feels a little icky. Um, 
but you know, I I think you can question you can question the makeup choices and the fat suit and like why did any of that but then it's hard because like i just think the character is fundamentally not great um mm. but emma thompson has you know again brilliant comedic timing so she did what she could with it mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't think i could have asked any more from her i mm. just you know i don't know i don't know <laughs> Okay, contrast that with the performance of the young Alicia Weir as Matilda. I thought she was great. Great. I thought all the kids were fantastic across the board. Um, Mm. Oh, I don't know who played the little beret girl, but she was great. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, who's she? Mm. What's her deal? I want to know. She was kind of like punk Mm. a little bit. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. all those kids were incredible. I don't don't know. Um, I think a lot of them are stage kids. Yeah, um, it definitely, definitely felt like that. Um, yeah. There's only so much. This is obviously an adaptation of the stage musical. There's only so much you can make it theatrical. Some of these stage musical trappings definitely came into this. Um, to that yeah. point, what did you think of the story within a story that Matilda was telling uh, to her friend? Because I oh the and, acrobat uh, thing. Yeah, I thought that that worked up to a point. I, I think they, I mean, they, they try and sort of bring it full circle and have it land sort of late on in the film. But as it was happening, I was like, where are they going with this? And I get that we're not meant to take it fully literally, but when mm. you have a line saying she fell from a great height and broke every bone in her body and then she gave birth, it reads a little weird. I think I I think the musical numbers were all very well staged because it did hit the right balance between preserving the theatricality of what these these songs are mm-hmm. and and having the space for people to dance and actually showing the letting the camera show us them dancing which is mm. such a fucking rare thing because <laughs> mm-hmm. directors don't seem to understand that, that I want to watch the people dancing <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, finding, yeah, finding like little cinematic tricks to make it, to turn what is a set into a stage. Um, mm-hmm. I thought was really well done. And so I think going back to the acrobatic um, love, there's like a story of a love story between two acrobats mm-hmm. Uh Again, like the way that it was shot, I was like, "Oh, they're finding little ways to like make it look nice and to make it what I can tell was a whole thing on stage mm-hmm. to make it fit without while preserving, yeah, that sense of like magic to it." So I, I liked mm-hmm. it. I thought it was sweet. Okay, good stuff. All right, it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations on Vault Dolls, Matilda the Musical film version uh clarice i would say screen i i Ooh. really enjoyed it Interesting. <laughs> i i truly wish this was a visual podcast right now um i'm gonna say stream again i think i've been like the stream stream guy on this um and we're not gonna get into it this week because we're gonna wait for it to drop on uh streaming uh partially because uh, we want Hannah Flint around to give her her thoughts on it. But mm. there are two films playing in films this week. 
which I would definitely go screen for, and that is Glass Onion, A Night Out Mystery, and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio! He's a real boy! (laughs) Both of those films are brilliant, and we will get into why in due course in later weeks. But for now, it is time for our... What? What? Feels so empty when she's not here to do it with us. I know. The Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special sees James Gunn take part one of his victory lap around Marvel Studios before he fully commits to his duties as the new co-head of DC. The forty-five minute forty-two. I was counting. Um. Uh. I'm round it up, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the 42-minute television special follows the Guardians of the Galaxy as they celebrate Christmas and search for a present for their leader, Peter Quill. It's written and directed by Gunn, and it stars Chris Pratt. It stars Dave Bautista. It stars Carrigan. It stars Pong Clementine. It stars Ben Diesel. It stars Roddy Cooper. It stars Sean Gunn and Michael Rucker. And it stars, ladies and gentlemen, in his official Marvel Cinematic Universe debut... Mr. Kevin Bacon is in the building, and he's having a lot of fun. I'm going to start with this, Clarice. Yes. I have always, you know, liked to appoint Mantis. Um, she's been a fun presence, starting from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. She's gotten some good moments. But after watching this film, if anybody harmed one hair on Mantis's head, I would be out for blood. Um, because she is fantastic. She is by far the MVP of this movie, and Pom Clementia is excellent. Uh, would you agree? Oh, I've been a Mantis stand from day one. I <laughs> love her so much. <laughs> She's just so funny, and I find her quite relatable. Um, and and I, this is the thing. I really love the Guardians of the Galaxy. I think out of the all the MCU like teams, they're my favorite by far because I I think James Gunn found a way to really um, make them fit his voice and his style of humor, and it feels so natural and and like the jokes here, like Mantis's jokes, <laughs> like they don't they don't feel like the the Marvel kind of like boardroom jokes that you get sometimes. I mean, there's lots of really funny stuff in the MCU. I don't want to be too much of a downer on that, but sometimes you're like, oh, the committee of six wrote this. While with this film, you're like, oh, James Gunn wrote this joke. (laughs) Only James Gunn could have written this. And I love the thing where they break into Kevin Baker's house (laughs) and, and he's got all his Christmas decorations outside. (laughs) <laughs> and they get really fixated on like one thing and and Drax loves the, the elf the elf man and and Mantis has this candy cane and they have this argument about whether the candy cane looks like a guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh god, and she's like asking police officers, it's like, do you think this candy cane looks like a man? <laughs> and, and they're like, no, it's like yeah, my friend is an idiot. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. But that's like the beautiful thing about Mantis because not only does she get great sort of comedic moments like that where her well-meaning weirdness just shines through, 
and it's really funny because of it. We talked a lot about about it, this pod, but again, it's finding the truth within the comedy. And I guess here, finding the weird within the comedy. It's, it's very funny. Um, but the emotional moments, she lands those as well. Um, mm. I'm not going to get into it too much because we have not said spoilers for this. We probably should have, but it's fine. Um, but there's a running thread through this film that gets paid off in a big way uh, in the final few minutes, which really moved me. Yeah, it's like this, this is this thing that the secret that Mantis has, mm. and she's so worried about telling people. And then when she does, it's like totally, oh, the reaction is so beautiful. It yeah. made me cry because it's like, and I think as well, what James Gunn did very well with this is that it feels Christmassy, which I know is a stupid thing to say, but not just aesthetically. Obviously, there's loads of Christmas decorations and Christmas mm-hmm. music, mm-hmm. but in the like the construction of the story where it ends with this moment of like the guardians reminding us that they are a family together and Mm -hmm. that they will always support each other in a really simple but effective way i Mm. think Mm. absolutely okay uh let's talk about it the kevin bacon of it all uh his mcu debut he is obviously the man who peter quill takes a lot of inspiration from uh, but Peter Quill and Kevin Bacon are share share the screen together in this film. What did you make of the EE Man's MCU debut? <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, I love Kevin Bacon, and he's so much fun in this. But <laughs> when Kevin Bacon is playing himself, it I did make me think a little too much of his EE ads. Because that's the only time I ever see Kevin Bacon playing himself. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> but I also liked that they acknowledged his real world wife, Kira Sedgwick. Yeah. I don't know if that was her voice no, it was. on the phone. It was. Yeah. I loved that touch. I thought it was really sweet <laughs> to have yeah. like the actual family there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I liked that too. Wait, we didn't talk about somebody. The most okay. important character. Cosmo. Okay. Introduction of Cosmo. To, well, not the introduction of Cosmo to the MCU, because Cosmo was already in the queue for Gone into the Galaxy uh, Mission Breakout. But <laughs> the cinematic MCU debut of Cosmo, yeah. who is voiced by uh, Maria Bakalova, right? That was her. Correct. Sounded oh, like that fame. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing Cosmo's going to be in the Gone into the Galaxy 3 because I yes, did not get enough will. Cosmo. <laughs> and she's so cute, and I just want to push her little face. Um, but also, she has telekinetic powers? I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, she could be a lot of fun going forward. A great addition to the team. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting, because, you know, James Gunn has been upfront about it. This is going to be the last time we're going to see this iteration of the Guardians all together, <laughs> Volume 3. Um, it's gonna be emotional. Probably some big people are gonna maybe not be with us by the time credits rocket. roll. Rocket. They keep being like it's rocket story. So it's like so rocket's gonna die. Like you could just tell. I us. think I th- I think Quill might die. Maybe they all they'll all die. Don't, I think don't rocket's, say that. <laughs> rocket's got it in. Rocket's dead. But also, I need to know why does Groot look like that? I love it, but <laughs> yeah, no, he's 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 growing. So he had sort of a you know, tiny little baby Groot. Then he had, 
you know, teenage teen, group. Teenage group. Right. Now we get what to the older, older teenage group. I don't know. But he's still got a um, little. He's still got a baby group. It's like group body and baby group face. Yeah, <laughs> it's so yeah. strange. I like it. I like it, but it's strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there's a time jump. I don't think there'll be too much of a time jump yeah. between this and Guys and Galaxy One and Three, but. Well, at some point, that. exactly, be be his original Guardians look, um, and that'd be cool to see. But um, yeah, this this marks the end of Phase Four together with Wakanda Forever. What are your thoughts about this phase? Because it's been, I think, kindly we could say up and down, um, and I think coming off the just home run that was Marvel's Phase Three. Um, mm. It's been, for some, I guess, a bit of a letdown. I think that's too strong of a word. There's been a lot of good stuff that I've liked across both the films and the TV side of Marvel. Um, But there's no question that it has not matched the quality that we've been accustomed to in previous phases. I mean, for me, the high point of Marvel, when it went from... They had, like, a thing where it went... um, They had Thor Ragnarok... Black Panther, Infinity War, around that time, basically, like they was those are like you know four to five star entries, consistent, bang, 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 one after the other, feeling cohesive with one another, but not so cohesive that that is distracting from what the story that they are currently telling is doing. Um, and I feel like with the increased volume, not only with the amount of films they're making, but with the TV shows as well, it's been tricky to consistently maintain that level of quality um so yeah up and down what, what are your thoughts on mc phase four sorry can i so quantum mania that's going to be phase five that's phase five so it's that's, ending that's, with that's, this yeah. the holiday special yeah yeah okay. quantum mania is the start of phase five okay um i think the ideas of phase four have been some of the most interesting mm-hmm but the execution mm-hmm. has been, yeah, very mixed bag. I think you're so right because of the volume of stuff they've been putting out. It doesn't feel like there's as much care being put into individual entries because they know mm-hmm. another one's around the corner in like a month. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, because I, I thought um, like Loki was so cool. I loved mm-hmm. Loki. Moon Knight, obviously, I think that character is incredible. Uh, really? You haven't in- mentioned that before. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it just makes me wonder, like, oh, what if Moon Knight had come out in an earlier phase? Mm. Like, what it have been like to see Moon Knight with, like, the amount of care and attention that was put into, say, Black Panther or something, or Thor Ragnarok. And yeah, it's like, it's interesting, even looking at the difference between Thor Ragnarok and Thor Love and Thunder, which, you know, are two movies I... I like a lot because, you know, it's Taika's voice and I think he has such a great voice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like little things in, in Love and Thunder with like the, the special effects, um, some of the special effects, some of the pacing. The thing which I've been saying about the difference between, differences between those two films, with Thor Ragnarok, it felt like Taika had something to prove. With Thor Love and Thunder, yeah. it felt like he's resting on his laurels. It felt like he had a deadline to hit, is my take. Okay. <laughs> Um, it, like some of the Marvel projects of Phase Four felt like, like you wrote the essay the night before it was due. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
like it feels like the I genuinely feels like it's the the limitations have not been imagination or creativity but practical things like not enough mm. budget not enough time not enough time in the editing room not enough time mm. in the script writing process so they're having to rush things mm-hmm. um so I'm really would like Kevin Feige if you can hear me mm-hmm. <laughs> Papa can you hear me <laughs> um like genuinely the ideas are there I love the character that they have but if they could just slow down a little bit, put a little mm-hmm. bit more time into things, mm-hmm. I think we could get back to the quality of what, what you were saying. That is it phase three, the Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hopeful. Um, I think now that the bigger picture is starting to come into focus in terms of what the long form storytelling is doing, um, that will only help with the short term storytelling and also I think our reactions to it. Um, as Phase 5 kicks off with Quantum Mania, which I'm very excited about. Um, you know, Ant-Man, the Ant-Man films are fun, um, but they are not films which I feel a desire or need to revisit um, whenever I do sort of MCU stuff. But Quantum Mania, with the threat of Kang on the horizon, well, not on the horizon, in the horizon, he's there. He's um, he's the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like that is going to lead to some really interesting storytelling that just not that's, that's more than just maybe flimsy is too light a word. This is the wrong word because I know that there's some really good stuff about parenting, uh, for instance, in those films, but the stakes that a Kang brings with him can only help a movie like Ant-Man. Uh, so yeah, excited, uh, still make mine Marvel, um, still a big MCU fan. Uh, and, and that's why I'm saying all these things with love and not hate. I, I want you to be good so that I can have a good time so that everyone can have a good time. That, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. some nice constructive criticism. That's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I'm very excited for Guardians of the Galaxy volume three, because yeah. as I said, they've been my, always been my favorite. Going to the Galaxy was the first MCU movie I ever saw. Um, and mm. I have loved the Guardians since then. Mm. I just think they're such a brilliant set of characters. And mm. I'm going to be really sad when they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like mm-hmm. pretty sad about this being the last Guardians film. I know they say they, they'll bring back other Guardians, but it's not mm-hmm. going to be like James Gunn's Guardians mm-hmm. of the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Final question before we nip this one in the bird. Your favorite film of Marvel Cinematic Universe Phase 4 is? Film or does that include TV shows? Your favorite thing in MCU favorite Phase 4. Thing. Oh, oh, um, I think, oh, I think my favorite film was Wakanda Forever and my favorite TV show. I think like, like, I'm gonna put my Moon Knight obsession aside. What? I think, I think the best, (laughs) well, just to say, I think the best made one was Loki. I think yeah. that was very well done and it didn't really that show for me didn't really have any weak points to it. I mm-hmm. think Moon Knight some of the effects were a bit oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But the story was beautiful. So maybe it's a tie between Moon Knight and Loki. But also I, I thought Wakanda Forever was really well done. Yeah. How about you? Who I'm going to I'm going to give you three different categories here. Okay. <laughs> so, favorite film 
Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Favorite film experience, Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, being in the first UK screening of that film was a special, special night that I'm not going to forget anytime soon. Like, I haven't felt that way watching a film since, like, Infinity War and Game Times. It was that type of vibe. When certain things got revealed, well, like, this is pretty much, I'm going to say, but... Um, Andrew Garfield. The, <laughs> yeah, the, when, when, when Andrew Garfield especially came through the pool, like, oh, shit. And then when all three of them are swinging through the air together, I'm not going to forget watching that moment for the first time anytime soon. It was a special, special mm-hmm. night. I came out of that, I came out of that cinema bouncing. I was watching it with Chris Hewitt, uh, with a lot of the Empire gang. And like, we, 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 I think we hugged each other like four times after that screen. <laughs> like we were on that level of hype. It was great. So that was fantastic. Favorite Disney plus MCU show for me is Loki. Um, for all the reasons you say, but also, I'm going to continue saying this, I said this at the time, but Natalie Holt's score for Loki is top five MCU score, period. It is that good. Um, I highly recommend listening to it on its own if you have not already. It is a special piece of work. I really hope that her He Who Remains theme, which is the final track on the score and the final track on the show itself, that's when you know, it becomes clear that Kang and all his multiversal variations are now going to be a thing. He Who Remains is a spectacular, it's one of the best tracks in the history of the MCU. It's fantastic. And uh, if you go to Composer Magazine, you can find my interview with Natalie Holt where she talks about that a little bit. It's really interesting. Um, but it's, it's a phenomenal piece of work. So yeah, that is how I break down MCU Phase 4. There's been a lot of stuff that I've really, really liked. Some stuff which has been very middling. Middling, I think, is the word that I've used for MCU Phase 4 in, in totality. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully um, it only improves as Phase 5 and Phase 6 comes into play, as the Fantastic Four come into play, as the X-Men come into play. Mm. All of that is going to be very, very exciting. Where the fuck is Moon Knight Season 2? <laughs> <laughs> as Moon Knight Season 2 also Please. comes into play for Clarissa's sake. Uh, but... For now, that is it for episode 88 of the Faith Light Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing. By whatever medium is safest for you, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Faith of Black Pod on Twitter. Before we go, we have to give a shout out to Will and Lorraine, yes. who are now officially engaged friends of Faith of Black Pod. You came out to our live show earlier this year. We're very, very appreciative of that congratulations to both of you that is fantastic i look forward to seeing you at the wedding no doubt my invite is already in the mail no need to invite clarice she should be fine at home but (laughs) (laughs) and i hope that you had a lovely time i think i'm allowed to say that they're at disneyland paris yeah um (laughs) and wonderful photos I love Winnie the Pooh. Congratulating <laughs> them on their engagement. It's yeah, so that. precious. <laughs> that was wonderful. It's wonderful. So cute. I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm also on Letterboxd. I'm trying to do Letterboxd now, so you can follow me there. I have joined the Hive Hive. 
So I'm also at a Wonder Woman on Hive as well. Um, I'm not there yet because I've just <laughs> assumed that every other social media platform is going to steal my data. So I'm waiting <laughs> to see <laughs> who gets hacked first. <laughs> Fair play. Uh, and Hannah Flint is at Hannah Flint uh, on Twitter. No, I'm, I, don't, I don't even know. It's, it's confusing. Don't um, follow her because she's not here. She doesn't deserve to be followed on social media this week. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Jokes, jokes. Jokes, jokes, it's jokes. either at Hannah Flint or Hannah Inez Flint on Twitter and Instagram. I don't know which one is which, but just have fun. Hannah Inez Flint is Instagram, right? And Hannah Flint. Yes, that sounds Instagram. right. There you go. We got that in the end, Hannah. Sorry. Uh, farewell, <laughs> film friends. It's time to fade to black. <laughs>